All right, brothers and sisters, we have before us a decent chunk of scripture. Before you put it on the screen, um, we are at a portion of the gospel of Matthew um, that recounts the events of Jesus' final week of earthly ministry. We sometimes refer to this as Holy Week. Um, as you're reading these verses, as you're reading these chapters, it's, it's not fun and happy. And you, you can almost feel the tension because the, the major theme of the final week of Jesus' life, at least publicly, is, is judgment. That he's here to pronounce judgment on the establishment that is. And there are several motifs that flow through here. And, and you see this, this back and forth of conflict and, and challenge of contest where there seems to be these verbal sparring matches between Jesus and the establishment that is. And so what we saw begin a few weeks ago in Matthew 21 with the triumphal entry, in one sense, from a human perspective, you would say the situation rapidly deteriorates. Because he comes in hailed, as the son of David, the Messiah, the king. And in just a few short days, he's crucified as, as a rebel, as a traitor to Rome, as a usurper, as a pretend king. From a human perspective, that's a rapid deterioration. But what we see here, though, is Jesus in these verses is establishing the nature of his kingdom. He's presenting the case for why the present system has failed. The present leaders have failed. And the people have been utterly unresponsive. And so the justice of God is hereby vindicated in the transference of the kingdom to another. We see a cycle, and this passage begins that cycle where in the aftermath of the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, both of which were symbolic acts on the part of Jesus, we have the Pharisees do what Pharisees going to do, and that is they ask the question, in your Bible, what you have is the Holy Spirit-inspired summary of it by what authority i assure you they were not following robert's rules of order they were saying it more along the lines of who do you think you are and jesus poses a question to them and their response instigates jesus to tell three parables against them they retaliate with Three attempted verbal traps, which Jesus then proceeds to silence them with a trap of his own, and before he pronounces judgment in the form of seven woes. And then he delivers the famous or infamous 
Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 whilst the religious leaders go off to plot how to murder him. So what we're seeing now is Jesus engage in discussion with the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, vindicating the justice of God, vindicating the transference of the kingdom. And when you recall that the first century audience that was reading this gospel, that they were... They were witnesses, so to speak, to to all the troubles that were befalling Israel. Even if this was written before 70, which I believe, the hubbub was building up to a head. And when they kicked out the Roman garrison in 66, things got bad for them quick because Rome came back. And they systematically destroyed, dismantled the nation as they marched south. And so from afar, you're sitting there watching the situation. Why is this going down? Did God forsake his people? And Paul, for his part, writes Romans 9, 10, and 11. The gospel writers, for their part, write this section here, vindicating why this was transpiring, that it was all part of the plan and purpose of God. So, that being said, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 21 as we commence at verse 23 and read through 22 verse 15. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer... Then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? Which, by the way, is classic rabbinical introduction of a rebuke. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, 
Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. 
Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for even this passage of scripture. You are mighty. You are holy. Your vengeance is awesome. Your judgments are terrifying. But you are merciful. And you hold out your hands all day long. Grant that we would flee to you. And that we would not be as these. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as I indicated a few moments ago about what this passage is in here for and what the, what the placement of it is and the, the proceeding from it, how next week we'll see the Pharisees strike back and they try to entrap Jesus in his words. What here happens is you see Jesus now pronouncing the judgment that was acted out in the symbolic acts of the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. And we see that they don't just take it lying down. They, they see all that Jesus is doing and they have a question. Who do you think you are? A question of authority. And what's ironic is throughout history, throughout church history even, whenever someone rises up who, who disturbs the status quo, the question always posed is, by what authority are you doing this? Who gives you the right? It was asked of Jesus. It was asked throughout church history up to the Reformation. It was, it was a challenge posed by the authorities during the Reformation. Uh, it was... Many, many preachers were arrested even in colonial America because they weren't officially approved by the state. Authority. We care about authority. What gives you the right? And in the case of Jesus, we see that he's just received affirmation and he's just declared himself by action to be the son of David, the messianic king. So what gives him the right? His position. He's the king. And the king pronounces judgment here. I want you to see in this challenge that takes place from verses 23 through 27, um, just just a truly despicable moral reasoning system. They ask Jesus, where does he get the authority from? And Jesus' answer appears to be, on the surface of it, a, a brush off, doesn't it? I mean, John the Baptist's been dead for a while now. Why, why are you bringing up John the Baptist? He's dead and buried. Well... What had John the Baptist said about Jesus? And that's the key. If, 
If they had received John the Baptist, well, then what had John the Baptist said about Jesus? Here is what John the Baptist said about Jesus in John 1, 29 through 34. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's why Jesus says to the religious leaders, the baptism of John, from God or from man? What was he? Because the answer to their question is wrapped up in the answer to that question. But, but look at the moral reasoning here. And oh, it's just terrible. They go, they're, these guys are skilled, practiced, experienced politicians. They know that when Jesus asks them a question, that the answer is not to answer. It's to go and deliberate. Deliberation. We act like it's the pinnacle virtue. And they go and they deliberate. <laughs> if we say it's from God, then he's going to ask us. But if we say it's from man, I mean, these people might kill us. At the very least, they were afraid of losing esteem and rapport in the eyes of the people. But, but really, folks, they were afraid of, of being stoned. They were afraid of physical violence. There is something about, even to this day, in that part of the world, man, people are real quick to just violence uh, at every little thing. It was, it, but they were afraid of the people. Notice, their moral reasoning is based upon the thing that we in our day would call real politic. It is not a question of is John from God or from man? The question is, based on what answer do I like the, 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 the outcome? The consequences of my, of my answer determine my course. And in this case, I don't want to be asked a hard question by Jesus on the one hand, but I also don't want to be stoned by the people on the other hand, so I'm just going to not answer the question. And, and, and right in there, in that their entire moral reasoning system revealed, you see in a nutshell the problem. People were bigger to them than God. When Jesus says not to fear man, but rather fear God, he's saying to you, 
that the estimation of God should be nearer and dearer to you than the estimation of people, and that God's verdict of you should matter more to you than people's verdict, and these were consummate, worldly-minded people. And because they were worldly-minded people, they put all their stock in the outward and the external which we've talked about previously, matters of the heart were of little consequence compared to the external, the visible, and the formal. And so Jesus clearly reveals a you-ain't-the-boss-of-me mindset. And he's right. He's the king. Now, you're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Jesus in 23 is going to tell people they they need to do what the religious leaders say because of their position of authority. But Jesus is in a different position than we are, so Jesus is not beholden to the leaders. They are not the boss of him, so he doesn't feel obliged to answer them. Instead, Jesus tells three parables. And it breaks my heart and it frustrates me when I read evangelical commentaries who, who, who act like displays of God's wrath are somehow mean on the part of God. That, you know, even though people are just the worst, it's, it's just terrible. It's unfortunate that, that God would, would, you know, destroy them. What a worldly mind... What, what? Who's the omnipotent creator and who's the creature of dust? Anyway, but before you see a word of God's judgment here, I want you to see this passage in Jesus and his vindication of the wrath of God. He holds forth the patience, the tender mercy, the love of God that has been tenderly displayed over and over and over again. In these three parables, first he tells the parable of the two sons. And there's a little unique feature here. It says the man had two sons. Well, the normal word for son is the word weos. And that's a word that we are called sons of God because weos, it means son, but the, the cultural emphasis there is on the legal standing of that person. You're the one who's going to receive the inheritance. It's, it's, it's a legal standing term, not a term of endearment. So that word isn't used here. It's the word technon, which means Literally, child. This passage actually doesn't say the man had two sons. It says he had two children. And it's the word that is used when we're talking about dear and endearment and precious. It's the word that's used of us by John and and. 1 John and 2 little children, when he refers to us, it refers to the precious attitude with which God views us. We are dear to him. So in this passage, 
in this parable of the two sons, it starts off with a term of endearment. Each of these children is precious to him. And he goes to each one. Son, child, technon, precious, go and work in the field today. And the first son is just, just rude, curt. There's not a hint of respect. And, and that's exacerbated in a, in a patriarchal society like that. It's, it's just ghastly behavior. No. I mean, I doubt few of you have sons or daughters that will to your face just, you tell them, nope. It's, it's terrible. And especially in that day, nope, not going to do it. But they do, and then he goes to the second, Precious. He tells him to go work in the vineyard, and boy, oh boy, this is the favorite son of everybody. Right? Oh, I, I go, sir. Sir, respectful. He learned his manners. Sir, I'll do it, sir. I go. Present tense. I'm, I'm moving. You jumped, and I said, how? I'm going. Lip service. And so Jesus then asks, who did the will of the Father? The first. Duh. And that's when Jesus launches in. The, the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, all these terrible people who had spent all their lives saying no to the law of God had repented. And they turned. And you ostensibly dedicated your life to doing the, the law. But you've never repented. And even when you saw people repenting, you didn't say, you know, I want to get in on some of that too. You didn't even do that. So you see the tenderness of God in offering. And in referring to them as precious. And then he tells the, the second parable. The parable of the tenants. And this borrows, it's like Isaiah's parable of the vineyard, part two from Isaiah 5, where God builds a vineyard. And, and in the parable of the tenants, we see here, we see God, he, the first thing he does is he provides for every need. He gives it everything it would require to be successful. He plants it. He builds a wall for protection. He, he provides for water. He provides for guarding. He provides, he provides everything. And then he leases it. And upon the season coming due, he sends a first group of servants to collect. And they mistreat them. They physically abuse them. They kill. They about kill. They just... Don't reply, respond. And then the king sends a second round of servants. And the same thing happens. Now at this, we would say, why on earth is he sending his son? If you were a rich landowner and you were sending people to collect rent and they were murdering your rent collectors, you're not going to send your own son. Jesus is telling a story to show how merciful the Father is. 
that even from a human vantage point, it's absurd that you would do such a thing. But nonetheless, God in his love does what we as humans would say is absurd. He sends his son. And here the word is weos for son. And the tenants know this. It's the heir. So let's kill this sucker, and then we can have it for ourselves. What a twisted, perverse logic. And then so then Jesus says when the king returns, what's he going to do? And they, of course, hang themselves. Mercy upon mercy, patience, benevolence, forbearance, over and over Move on to the third parable, the parable of the wedding feast. We see that when it begins, invitations had already been sent. Gracious. The day comes, he sends his first batch of servants, and they just won't listen. They ignore them. They're apathetic. They're indifferent. He sends a second batch of servants, and this time, there's a mixed response Some are only indifferent. The others turn and destroy them. And then there's wrath. Forbearance, kindness, toleration. All day long we hear from the prophets, I've held my hands out to a stubborn people. We see this over and over throughout the prophets. And what we see in line here is the Pharisees and the religious establishment of the first century is acting in complete conformity with the religious establishment from centuries and centuries and centuries before. An unbroken line of succession of hardened, recalcitrant rebellion. Jesus is going to say that in just a few verses. Stephen, that's the point of his speech in Acts, which leads to him getting stoned. There's an unbroken line of recalcitrant resistance to God. But God, for his part, has all day long been holding out his arms. God's love is on radical display. You see, they'd presumed upon God's grace. God had judged them before, but God's gracious, so he restored our fortunes. God's gracious. He forgives. He's in the forgiving business. And brothers and sisters, this this passage highlights to us the love of God and the fact that he is willing to forgive all kinds of sin, all kinds of rebellion. He is a a God who delights in showing mercy. But understand this, and this heightens their guilt. God owed them not a single opportunity. They were given servants after servants. They were sent prophet 
after prophet over the course of centuries. The people of Canaan received no prophet. Sodom, Gomorrah, they had no prophet. Entire peoples have existed on this planet and died without ever hearing the gospel. Is God unjust? No. You see, they took for granted opportunities to repent when God owes no one any. Any time we are afforded an opportunity to repent, it's an act of sheer gracious mercy on the part of God. And they took it all for granted. What's a pity is that all too often we presume upon God's grace too. And we think that just because we're sitting here that we're clear. Woe. This passage is interesting also because there's a slight twist at the end. After the judgment at the wedding feast and he burns the city he sends out more servants to bring in everybody, good and bad. And here we have echoes back to the parables of the kingdom from earlier in the book when, when like a fishing net, it's catching all kinds of fish. And, and, and you see that there's good and bad there. And then there's this thing that's needed to actually be a guest there, a, a wedding garment. And he, the king finds a guy standing there who has not a garment how did you get in here without a wedding garment? The guy is speechless, and he throws him out and casts him to hell. And when I read that, every time I read that, I'm reminded of the next to last line from Pilgrim's Progress. The very last line is, and I awoke and behold it was a dream. Fantastic, fantastic last line. But the next to last line is this. Then I perceived there is a way to hell even from the very gates of the city of heaven, even as there is from the city of destruction. And of course, what he's talking about is if you read Pilgrim's Progress, it's with great difficulty that, that Christian and hopeful, they come to the river that represents death and, and, and Christian especially is, is terrified. He's, he starts struggling with doubts. But he gets through it with the help of hopeful. And they, and they get, and, and then they're met with this royal angelic entourage. And it's just this beautiful scene of triumph. And, they, and they're welcomed into heaven and they, and they receive the wedding garments. And the gates open and then John Bunyan's perspective. He goes, and I got, a, I got to have a peek inside the gates, and it was just awesome. Crowns, harps, gold, just awesome. But then John Bunyan looks, and there's this other dude that's been kind of shadowing Christian and hopeful throughout their life, throughout their pilgrimage, and his name is Ignorance. And he comes to the river, that is death, and his way across is, is smooth and easy because, 
Because there's a ferryman who, instead of them, you know, making them swim across, this ferryman lets them in his boat and he takes them across. And the ferryman's name is Vain Hope. And he gets to the other side, but there's no angelic entourage. He's just by himself. And he, he, he walks up to the gate and knocks on the door and the gatekeeper, who are you? Where's your certificate? And he has none. So then the gates open, angels come, and they fly him over and throw him into the door into hell. As I read this passage, and I see the love of God on display, I'm reminded that every opportunity to repent is precious because eventually the bill comes due. Eventually the window of opportunity closes. For some, in God's, in the mysterious workings of God's sovereign decree and plan, some never receive an opportunity. And God is just because they are sinners willfully. But others, like the people of Israel, have had hundreds of years. Some, like us, have churches where we have the access to the Bible, we have the access to all the best preaching you can imagine. And we still have hard hearts. A hard heart. I'm reminded of Hebrews 3.12. Many of you know this verse. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. He's talking to the brothers here. To, to Christians. To church people. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. In other words, as, as, as long as God gives opportunity so that for the purpose of that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is an enemy. And it's deceitful. The Puritans loved the word, to, uh, the insidiousness of sin. And that's a great word, insidious. And it, the reason I like the word insidious and the reason the Puritans like the word insidious is, is because it, to be insidious means subtle, discreet, gradual over time with harmful effect. It's cancer. At first, you do not know it's there. And sin, like cancer, wants to be undetected as long and as possible. 
so that by the time you're aware of its presence, it's too late and you're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And and so I I think this passage, even as it's showcasing to us the, the love of God, which is awesome and beautiful and we should run to, we should simultaneously, because we are like a compass, when a compass is pointing north, it is simultaneously pointing away from something, south. If your compass is orienting you east, it's simultaneously orienting you away from west. Repentance and faith are the opposite sides of a compass needle. When you repent, you're turning from something. It means to turn away from The other part that we don't so often talk about is towards something else. And that's faith. Turning from sin to God. Repentance and faith are two separate things, but but they're inseparable as an act. Because have you ever wondered how on earth did the Pharisees get this way? Have you ever wondered? Oh, they're just bad. I got it. But how do you go from loving the law of God and ostensibly claiming to to know the word inside out where they could cite it and quote it to seeing miracles, the sort of stuff that's in the Old Testament and being unimpressed, of seeing the the. The target audience reached. I mean, how could they see? They hate sin, and they see sinners repenting from sin. How's that not good? But they think it's terrible. And they see Jesus, and they're they're murderously hateful. Murder. Not, not, Not the figurative, hateful kind. The murder, murder kind. How did they get that way? Because of the deceitfulness, the insidiousness of sin over time. They, not only did they first presume upon God's grace, presume upon election, their status as the chosen people, But per Paul in Romans 9.32, they approached things as if it were by works. And if it's by works, then there's a few implications. First, if it's by works, then like He-Man, I have the power! And if I have the power to do it, then that means, one, I'm not all that bad. And we see that in their stubborn refusal to repent. They don't think of their sin as that big of a deal. But if it's also by works, then there's an order of merit. The more you do, the higher you are. The less you do, the the lower you are. That's how it kind of works. And so over time, sin hardened and calcified their hearts. 
so that they could answer all the questions on the test. But there was no love, no affection, no desire. And those hard appetites that should have been concerned with the kingdom were instead concerned with position and place and prominence. Which is why one of the hallmarks, one of the common, there, there, there are sins that are common to various groups. And a sin that is common to religiously inclined people is to mistake engagement in formal acts with a heart of affection for God. It's possible to be a mob boss murdering on Friday and going to Mass on Saturday. Because they think that they're doing, they're engaging in the acts and they don't see a disconnect. I remember one time in Georgia, it's a unique culture in the, in the South, and I'm at the garage, I'm at an auto shop, my car is being worked on, and the door is open from the lobby, and, and I can hear a couple of the mechanics talking, and, and no kidding, in the span of maybe 45 seconds to a minute, their conversation spans from football to picking up chicks at the club to what they're bringing to the potluck at church. No disconnect. Be sensitive. Know that sin is deceitful. And it wants to harden you. Sin wants to go undetected by you. Which is why we must wage war on the flesh. It's called mortifying, killing, seeking it out, hunting it down. And oftentimes you will find the effects are starting to play out when you have a little appetite, a lessened appetite, a gradually diminishing appetite for any joy in the Lord. You used to love reading the Bible. You used to love praying, but now it brings me no joy. And it's just another thing on my list. And I'm too tired. And then... Oh, I'm going to church, that's enough. But you sing the songs, you hear the prayers, your, your, your mind's already at lunch. And slowly but surely, our affections harden and the things of God no longer bring us any delight. And that's when sin's effect in our life is really starting to take hold. No one ever drifts towards holiness. That's a classic saying, right? No one ever drifts towards holiness. They only ever drift away. And we see the horrific outcome here. When you have the best, the brightest, the smartest, but man, they are as dead as doornails. And in the face of it, you have a tender God holding out his hands. But yet the bill comes due. So brothers and sisters, exhort one another. Encourage one another. Challenge, dare I say, provoke 
one another. This is the day. This is today. Repentance is available today. Encourage that we don't get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your tender mercies, which are renewed each day. You hold out your hands. You're gracious, you're benevolent, you're kind, you're merciful, but you are holy and just, and the bill comes due. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would, by your spirit, prick the consciences of those who are beginning to be hardened by sin. Grant that we would have tender hearts, that we would seek out and mortify our own sinful inclinations, lest, lest we wind up like these religious leaders. Grant, O oh God, that we would run to the Son and not away. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.